This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Visit our historic campus and see how we prepare ministers of the gospel for faithful service. Learn more at sbts.edu visit. This is the air that all of us breathe. This is the vision of selfhood that's present in the world around us. And if you buy into this vision of selfhood, here's how you will hear the seventh commandment. God's asking me to be inauthentic. God's asking me to deny my true self. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, Adultery is Not Authentic, was preached by Bob Thune at Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska, on March the 4th, 2018. The text is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Listen now to Bob Thune on Adultery is Not Authentic. The scripture readings for this morning are from Exodus 20, verses 14, and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Now we're preaching through the Ten Commandments. um, And and I want to step back. We're on the Seventh Commandment. And so we're sort of, you know, right in the middle. I want to step back and remind you of the big picture. All right? Um, When we introduced this series in the Ten Commandments on January 14th, um, here's what we said. Three things. Number one. We said that the Ten Commandments are rules of life for liberated people. These are not rules we follow in order to gain favor with God. This is the life God invites us to as a result of His delivering work in our souls. These are rules of life for liberated people. Secondly, the Ten Commandments are a communal ethic. So though they have bearing on each one of us individually, uh, we as God's people are to be marked by a certain kind of life together. And so we need to hear these as God's vision for a healthy church, God's vision for a beautified people who portray His glory in the world. Third, we said that the Ten Commandments show us our need for empowerment. Um, The Christian life cannot be lived apart from dependence on, reliance on the Holy Spirit. And so we said, if our gospel, if our understanding of the gospel gets us to Jesus and his death on the cross, but doesn't get us to the Holy Spirit and our dependence on the Spirit, 
then it's something less than the biblical gospel. So, with that background, that reminder, we come today then to the seventh commandment, which has to do with our sexuality. What an important topic. What a weighty topic. What a topic that touches so many facets of our being and our experience in the world. So let's take a deep breath and settle in and realize God, as He speaks to us about what it means to be liberated, about what it means to live as His people in the world, wants to speak to us about our sexuality. And that's what He has to say in the seventh commandment. The specific sin this commandment prohibits is the sin of adultery which is the most destructive form of sexual sin because it combines sexual immorality with covenantal betrayal. And so for that reason, it's very damaging and grievous to God. But as we've seen with the other commandments, uh, the seventh commandment has a broader scope than just adultery. Uh, We know this because of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and because of the teaching of pastors like Ephesians 5, which we just heard read. Okay, so so to state it plainly, uh, the seventh commandment prohibits every form of sexual activity outside the covenant of heterosexual marriage. Okay, so if you are uh, sexually involved with someone you're not married to, that's a violation of the seventh commandment. If you're indulging lust or fantasy, That's a violation of the seventh commandment. Uh, This commandment speaks to the whole spectrum of our sexual lives, not just adultery. Now, anytime I preach a sermon like this or we talk about a subject like this, um, I realize I'm always preaching to two groups of people at the same time. Uh, First of all, there are those of you who already treasure God's vision of sexuality. Uh, Maybe you love the Lord, maybe you've trusted His Word, and you've just grown up experiencing the blessing that comes from that trust. Or maybe you come out of a past that's been marked by sexual sin and brokenness, and you've come to Jesus Christ and been forgiven and set free, and you know the beauty and the life of that. Um, Either way, there's a certain group of people that hears the seventh commandment as true and beautiful and good. I don't have to convince you that God is speaking to you here words of blessing and life. But there's always um, a second group of people who will hear this commandment as restrictive and repressive and backwards. Maybe this commandment just confirms to you that the Bible is prudish in its view of sex and sexuality, and that it is hopelessly out of date and out of touch with the modern world. Uh, Jonathan Grant, in his excellent book, uh, Divine Sex, which I'm going to reference quite a bit uh, this morning, frames the question this way. What is it about our cultural moment that makes the Christian vision of sexuality seem naive and unrealistic at best, and downright repressive at worst? That's a great question. That's a question that we must answer, and it's a question I want to try and address as we begin our time together this morning. And so here's what I want you to see. The modern vision of sex is connected to the modern vision of the self. 
We have inherited from the culture around us a certain understanding of selfhood, of what it means to be a person. And so I want to survey for you very quickly three features of the modern understanding of the self. Three features of the modern understanding of the self, because our view of sex is connected to our view of the self. First of all, the modern view of the self is that the self is an identity-creating self. An identity-creating self. In Western liberal societies, we deeply believe that you establish your own identity through your individual choices. Okay, so just think about old European society as it's portrayed in the novels of Jane Austen or in shows like Downton Abbey, right? In that world, who are you? In that world, your identity is defined by the family that you were born into and the heritage that you have and the land that your family has owned or has not owned for generations. You are either a lord or a commoner, and there's not much you can do to transcend that. And everything Jane Austen ever wrote is about that tension. That's the world we left behind when we came to the new world. And in its place, we sought to create a world where each person could define their own destiny and become whoever they want to become. And in the process of that sort of um, authenticity, that identity-creating vision of the self, in the midst of that, sexuality became wedded to identity. Here's how Jonathan Grant puts it. The modern self sees sexual expression as a virtue that lies at the heart of human identity. We can only be fulfilled, happy, and mature when our sexuality is set free. That's the modern version or vision of sexuality because of the modern vision of what it means to be a self. Grant goes on to say this, the very idea that our sexuality in the narrow sense of its physical expression lies at the core of our personal identity is largely a 20th century innovation. Yet within a few generations, this view of human personhood has become for many the only conceivable way of thinking about their lives. This is the air that all of us breathe. This is the vision of selfhood that's present in the world around us. And if you buy into this vision of selfhood, here's how you will hear the seventh commandment. God's asking me to be inauthentic. God's asking me to deny my true self. The second aspect of the modern self is this. The modern self is a buffered self. In other words, my vision of myself is that I am insulated or buffered from other people. Jonathan Grant says it this way, rather than seeing the self as necessarily connected to other people so that we can become our full selves only within relationships, selfism views each person as an autonomous being and often locates the source of our problems in formative relationships with our parents and siblings. Within this model, true freedom involves becoming self-sufficient and freeing ourselves from the control and dysfunction of other people. Now, are there some dysfunctional people in your life that you need to free yourself from? Probably, okay? 
But notice what Grant is saying is that our view of the self is that the problems in our lives are, come from relationships, and authenticity means being a self disconnected and separate from everyone else. And the implication of this for how we think about sexuality is that our sexuality is a private matter. It's off limits. Again, Grant goes on to say, this idea that our sexual lives are purely private spaces has become a cardinal conviction among modern Christians. There often now appears to be no sense of connection between our personal relationships and the greater purposes of the wider church community. So many of us buy into the lie that um, what I'm doing in my personal life has no connection to my church community and to the larger body that I'm a part of. It only affects me. That's not true. Your sin always affects more than just you. And so if you buy into this idea of the modern self as a buffered self, here's how you will tend to treat the seventh commandment. Um, you will tend to say this, I agree with this commandment in most cases, but my situation is unique. Third, the modern self is a consumeristic self. I don't have to tell you this, this is the air we breathe, this is the world you live in. Uh, Jonathan Grant says this, consumerism trains us to acquire, consume, and move on with novelty as our guiding impulse. The sad reality, though, is that what we do with things, we will inevitably do with people. Although most people still believe in monogamous relationships, these have become brief and tenuous so that people move in and out of them more readily. Serial monogamy as an expression of the consumerist self forms the sort of person who is unable to enter into anything permanent, let alone the demands and sacrifices of marriage and family. Consumerism is shaping us in deep and profound ways. Uh, Dan Slater wrote a book five years ago called Love in the Time of Algorithms. Um, he also summarized that book in an article for the Atlantic Monthly, and in it he tells the story of a young man named Jacob who joined an online dating service. And he was a shy and sort of reserved person, but met a young woman named Rachel, and they began dating. But after two years, the relationship started to falter a little bit, and here's what Jacob said in an interview. I'm about 95% certain if I'd met Rachel offline, I would have married her. I would have done whatever it took to make things work. Did online dating change my perception of permanence? No doubt. When I sensed the breakup coming, I was okay with it. I was eager to see what else was out there. What we do with things, we will inevitably do with people. If you buy into a consumeristic view of self, here's how you will be likely to treat the seventh commandment. What's in it for me? If I sign up to obey God, what will God do to keep me as a happy customer? Your understanding and relationship with, God, with God's commandments will tend to be transactional, not devotional.
the modern view of sex, you see, is deeply connected to the modern view of the self. But here's the thing. Uh, this modern view of self is entirely false. It's existed for less than 300 years. And it's breathing its last breath as the philosophical foundation underneath it crumbles and falls apart. Let me show you what's really true about the self. The real self, as understood by the Bible, as understood in classical philosophy, and as understood by all of us in our deepest common sense, looks like this. The real self is not identity creating. The real self is identity receiving. You don't create an identity for yourself. You receive an identity. Think about the most basic piece of your identity, your name. Where did you get that? Someone gave it to you. You received it. Same thing with your ethnic and cultural heritage. All of your DNA and chromosomes, all the things that most deeply define who you are, you received. You didn't define them. Sure, there are some factors of your identity that your choices can influence, but it's not true, and it's never been true, that you construct your own identity purely out of nothing. That's a figment of modern imagination. Second, the real self is not buffered, but relational. You came into being as a result of relationship, as a result of intimate person-to-person communion. And though it is true that you are an individual, no one else on earth is quite like you. You also exist in a matrix of relationships from which you could not extricate yourself if you tried. You are a relational being. You are hardwired for communication and communion with other people and with God. And the way we know this is what is the greatest punishment available in modern jurisprudence? Solitary confinement. It destroys people. We are hardwired for relationship. Third, the real self is not consumeristic, but sacrificial. All of us know this deep down. When do you feel like the truest version of yourself? When do you feel most human and most alive and most useful? Is it right after you bought that new toy that you've been craving? No. It's always when you're sacrificing for the good of others, when you're giving of yourself in altruistic, selfless ways. That's where real joy is. That's when you come most alive. Listen, the truest and most authentic person who ever lived was the Lord Jesus Christ, who received his identity from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased who lived in vital relationship with God and others, and who sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. Your view of sex, you see, flows out of your view of the self, of what it means to be a person. To the extent that you buy the modern view of self, you will tend also to subscribe to the modern view of sex, But as soon as you start to work back and ask the question, what really is true about personhood, it changes what you begin to see about sexuality. Now, the seventh commandment is God's invitation to you 
to receive an identity that is deeper than your sexuality, to live in vital relationship with God and others, and to sacrifice for the good of others rather than treating them as objects for consumption. That's the invitation of the seventh commandment. All right, all of that was the introduction to the sermon, okay? Now let's get into the commandment, the vision the seventh commandment puts before us. I want you to ask this first of all. What's the vision God is painting here? What's the vision of life that this commandment puts before us? The vision the seventh commandment puts before us is a vision of faithfulness and holiness. As God has been faithful to us, so we are to be faithful to one another. As God is holy, so we are to be holy. So imagine a world in which spouses could count on one another's faithfulness, where there's no one looking outside the marriage for fulfillment. Imagine a world where sexual purity is honored and revered and guarded where sex is seen as something holy and sacred and beautiful, and no one wants to dishonor it. Imagine a world where sex is wedded to a promise of lifelong fidelity, so that the trust and openness and friendship required for real intimacy is guarded and kept. Imagine a world where attraction and romance have room to blossom and grow. Where boys and girls can fall in love without having their attraction twisted into lust. Imagine a world where people honor one another as human beings. Where no one is objectified for the purpose of sexual gratification. Imagine the freedom of living with a clear conscience knowing that you're not cultivating secret sin or lust or fantasy, but your conscience is clear before God and others. That's the vision the seventh commandment puts before us. You and I are invited to live into that world starting today. That's not some pie-in-the-sky vision. That's the life God wants to invite us into. Yes, it's a countercultural life. Yes, it's quite different from what we commonly experience in the world around us, but the seventh commandment is an invitation into life and blessing and flourishing. That's the vision the seventh commandment lays before us. I want you to see its beauty. I want you to be compelled by the moral beauty of that vision. Imagine what it would be like to live in a world like that. Now, how does the seventh commandment get broken? I mean, think about it, right? Um, no one sets out to commit adultery. No one stands at the altar saying, I can't wait to break this vow. Um, rather, adultery is the last stop on a journey of disordered desire. Adultery is the last stop on a journey of disordered desire. Adultery doesn't start with betrayal and unfaithfulness. It starts with maybe a little bit of lust protected in the heart. 
maybe a little bit of dissatisfaction with the person I'm married to. Maybe a little bit of conflict and tension that's not resolved. Maybe a little bit of longing for an adventure, an excitement, a life I feel like I'm not experiencing. Our problem is disordered desire. See, sexual desire is not evil. Let's be clear about that. Sexual desire is God-given. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Here's how Ed Clowney says it. The Lord placed in us at creation deep sexual emotions so that we might understand the jealousy of his love for us and the joy of jealousy for him. That's why you have sexual desire. It's God-given. It points you towards something greater. But your sexual longings and desires must be rightly ordered in order to glorify God. And see, what sin does is it disorders our desires. The word for lust in the New Testament is the Greek word epithumia, which literally means over-desire. Lust is desire that's not rightly ordered. It's a river that's flooded its banks and is causing destruction rather than running in the channel that God designed it to run in. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at New York University. He is an atheist, and he has done a lot of work on moral psychology, and he uh, came up with this illustration or this metaphor, this visual that he calls the rider and the elephant. You might be familiar with this if you've read any of his work. He says, most of our moral decisions are gut reactions in the moment. They're, They're driven by emotion and intuition like an elephant. Our reasoning is the rider on the elephant. And our reasoning usually comes into play way later and tries to steer the elephant back in some other direction. His metaphor is right on for how the Bible understands our makeup and our disposition. Do you feel sometimes like the powerless rider trying to restrain the elephant of sexual desire? Well, I have good news for you this morning. There's a solution to the problem of disordered desire. You know what that solution is? Rightly ordered desires. That's the solution. Right? If the problem is disordered desires, the solution is rightly ordered desires. If your desire for pleasure or for sexual fulfillment or for companionship or whatever it might be, if that is the highest desire in your life, you have no hope of keeping the seventh commandment because that desire will order and govern all the others. Your only hope is a new primary desire, a new highest love that then begins to reorder all the other loves and longings in your life. Or to say it another way, our only hope of keeping the seventh commandment is to love God more than we love ourselves. All of our failures to keep the seventh commandment, all of the sexual sin and disorder and dysfunction in our lives 
are failures of love for God. Have you ever tackled your sexual sin that way? God, I repent of the weakness of my love for you. God, help me to love you more. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. When love for God is primary, everything else falls into its proper place. This is why Martin Luther said, every one of the commandments always comes back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. When love for God is primary, everything else falls into place. This is why Jesus said, when he was asked to summarize the commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Get love for God right, everything else falls into place. So if that's the solution, if what we need is a love for God that can reorder all the rest of our desires, what is it that can awaken that kind of love? What is it that can stir and create that kind of love for God? What can cause us to love God in a way that reorders our desires? Here's the answer the Bible gives. Seeing God's love for us. That's what awakens the kind of love that changes us. Seeing God's love for us. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open it to the prophet Hosea. A book you probably haven't gone to recently. It's in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's in those really small books in the back that you sort of flip past and you don't know how to get to them. I want you to go to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is an object lesson of God's love for his people. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Listen to this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, The Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. God says to Hosea, I want you to go marry an unfaithful woman because my people are being unfaithful to me. Your marriage, Hosea, is going to be an object lesson of what my people are doing. And so Hosea goes and marries this woman. Unsurprisingly, she is unfaithful to him, and so he sends her away because she's an adulteress. And again, that is an object lesson for God's people. Look at Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Friends, I hope you see every week how the Ten Commandments are everywhere in the Bible. Verse 12, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring, and their rulers dearly love shame. Hope you see the Bible is not rated PG. Sorry about that. Right? 
God is saying, like Hosea's unfaithful wife, my people are unfaithful to me. They have violated their covenant with me. They've abandoned faithfulness to me. They've gone after other gods. The metaphor is adultery in the book of Hosea. Notice what happens. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea writing, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. In chapter 2, God says this, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Do you hear the good news? Despite the unfaithfulness of God's people, He wants us. He wants to be married to us He's jealous with love for us. What can awaken the kind of love for God that reorders all of our other loves? Seeing the relentlessness of God's love for us, of his commitment and faithfulness to an unfaithful people. Hosea 2.16 says, in that day. What day is it talking about? It's talking about the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hosea, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is looking ahead to the Lord Jesus who came to redeem God's unfaithful bride. Jesus came into this world, took on flesh and blood just like us, and lived a life of purity and holiness and sexual integrity. Love for God drove him and defined him. Love for God ordered his desires. Never did Jesus look on a woman with lust. Never did Jesus defile himself with sexual impurity. He lived the life of holiness that we are called to live but haven't lived. And then Jesus died for all of our sexual sin. All of our impurity and unholiness all the unholy things that have been done to us or against us, Jesus died to forgive all of that. He took it all into the grave with him and he left it there. And then Jesus rose again to free us from the power of disordered desire. All of our slavery to lust and longing, all of our disordered desires, Jesus broke the power of all that in his resurrection. And then Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to implant within us a new love. If you are born again, if you are united with the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me, the Spirit of God lives inside you. And his love for God is your love for God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you now to reorder your desires. You have a new power to live in sexual freedom and faithfulness to God and faithfulness to your word and faithfulness to God's people. Hosea 
says to us, God, in spite of our unfaithfulness, is jealous for us. He loves us. He wants to marry us. He wants to bring us into union with him. And he sent Jesus Christ to do just that. God welcomes us into covenant relationship with him, not because we've done so well, not because we have it all together, not because we're so faithful. Rather, he welcomes us into covenant relationship because through Jesus, he's redeemed all of our unfaithfulness. He's saved us from all of our brokenness. He's forgiven all of our sin. And he welcomes us into deep relationship with him. That, friends, has the power to reshape all of our desires. When we see God's love for us, it awakens in us a love for God that changes how we see the world, changes what we want out of life. It changes what we think we want. So here's the invitation of the seventh commandment. It's the invitation in light of God's grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ to come to him, to repent and believe. I think when we talk about sexual sin and sexual brokenness and sexual betrayal, the topics are so weighty and so heavy and we feel them so deeply that they can immediately drive shame and guilt and condemnation and despair and fear. And listen to me, none of that needs to define us. Rather, what Jesus wants to invite us into is the blessing, the beauty, the life, the freedom, the joy of repentance. Repentance is not a word that comes out of condemnation or out of failure. Repentance is a word that comes out of wanting to turn back to the God who has loved us so deeply. To repent means to leave behind our sin and to turn and run to the Lord Jesus who forgives us. And so that's the invitation this morning. What do you need to leave behind this morning? If you're married, has there been unfaithfulness in your life? If so, would you turn from it? Would you come to the Lord Jesus? Would you experience forgiveness? If you're dating or engaged here this morning, is there sexual impurity in your relationship? If so, would you leave it behind? Would you turn from it? Would you come to Jesus for forgiveness and freedom? Have you indulged? Are you indulging pornography or fantasy? If so, would you leave it behind and come to Jesus this morning for forgiveness and freedom? Is there sexual sin in your past that's never been confessed, that you just try to sort of move on from and pretend that it didn't happen? Would you turn this morning and come to Jesus, experience the depth and the fullness and the richness of his forgiveness and freedom? I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that there's likely a few of you here this morning that your sexual desires have taken you to some very dark places. And you're scared right now of what you find yourself capable of. Would you come into the light of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ this morning? Would you stop walking down that dark road? Would you turn to Jesus in repentance and would you turn to the community around you for hope? Lest you look around you and think that this is a room full of pretty people who have it all together. Everybody else thinks the same thing about you. 
What this actually is, friends, is a room full of sinners who have found forgiveness and freedom and healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you could possibly confess this morning that's going to surprise anyone. And I can assure you, this is a place where you will not be shamed. You will not be condemned. Rather, you'll be invited to confess your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and to experience his forgiveness and to start walking with him then out of brokenness and into wholeness, out of sin and into freedom, out of bondage and into the light of life. Jesus invites us, first of all, to repent, to come clean, to walk in obedience and truth, to bring our sin into the light so that it can be forgiven and so that we can experience cleansing and healing. Jesus doesn't just invite us to repent, though. He also invites us to believe. These are two sides of the same coin. One is turning and walking away from our sin and toward Jesus. The other is believing that what Jesus says is true. You're invited this morning in the seventh commandment to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that if you come to him, he really does forgive your sin. That you're not defined by what you have done or by what's been done to you, but you have a new identity in Jesus. Will you believe that this morning? Will you receive that new identity instead of trying to create one for yourself? You're invited this morning to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, that he really does dwell in every one of the Lord's people, and that he awakens love for God and reorders our desires. You're invited this morning in the seventh commandment to believe in redemption. That your future really can be different than your past. That you really can have victory over sin and real deep change. Most of all, you're invited in the seventh commandment to believe in the power of joy. That God is not inviting you into some white-knuckled obedience to the seventh commandment, but into the joy and freedom of a life of love for him that reorders all your desires. Where are you this morning? How do you need to respond to God's gracious invitation? Let's pray together. Our gracious God, every one of us has committed spiritual adultery. We have been unfaithful to you, our heavenly husband. But in your wondrous love and mercy, you have chased us down. You have found us. You have sent Jesus Christ to wash us, to cleanse us, to purify us from all our uncleanness. And you offer to us forgiveness, freedom, wholeness, mercy, purity, holiness. And so we come to you this morning and we say, yes, we'll take that. Give that to us, Lord Jesus. Where there needs to be repentance this morning, bring it. Help us turn from our sin. Where we need to believe in who you are and what you promised this morning, awaken that belief in us. Help us rest in your truth. Jesus, thank you for the fullness 
of the forgiveness, the freedom, and the new life that you offer, would you make us a community of people that live out a beautiful, a holy, a life-affirming, honoring vision of sexuality. Father, where we need deep change, where we need to be rewired in our affections, would you begin that work this morning by the gracious mercy of the Holy Spirit? Spirit of God, we end where we began, acknowledging our need for your empowerment. We have no hope of walking in obedience to you unless we depend every moment on your grace. So Spirit, bring to life in us obedience, joy, fulfillment. And help us not just avoid sin. Help us run headlong into the joy of following you wholeheartedly, knowing your love for us, that sought after us even when we were running from you. We pray all of this for our good and your glory. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.